One of the great paradoxes of Jesus' cross, an instrument of Roman torture, is that this cross is viewed, especially in John's Gospel, as the place of his kingly glory. He embraced the cross, one commentator said, precisely as a king embraces a scepter. And the early fathers of the church would speak of the Lord reigning from the tree. And tonight we want to look at this truth in Luke's gospel from a very unexpected pair of eyes, namely the thief on the cross, one of the two criminals who was executed along with Jesus. So I'm going to make three points the criminals, and then the derision or the mockery, and then the glory. The criminals, the derision, and the glory. So first, again, Luke 23, beginning at verse 32, first the criminals. The text tells us two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him, to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. Now these criminals are called robbers by Mark and Matthew. And the word can also mean an insurrectionist, a rebel against the Roman state. And Barabbas, you may remember him, he's the criminal who Pilate earlier released instead of releasing Jesus. Barabbas was also called a robber, but we know that he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. So these are not petty thieves. They are, as their crucifixion indicates, Guilty of capital crimes. And you should note that Luke emphasizes the word with. They were let out with him. They crucified him there along with the criminals. Now just before his arrest, Jesus cited the text which was just read earlier from Isaiah 53. A text which says he was numbered with, counted among the transgressors. That text, Jesus says, is coming to fulfillment in his passion and death. So that Jesus' whole life of solidarity with and love for sinners, his befriending, of hated tax collectors and his associating and eating with prostitutes and other undesirables. That solidarity comes to its consummation at the cross. And this solidarity is not merely the fact that Jesus is near them. It's total identification. He is together with them And thus he is treated 
as one of them. By men, but yes, also by God. He makes their criminality, their sin, but especially their character as criminals, his own. This being numbered as a criminal, this is the significance of the phrase, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Calvin says that by hanging him in the middle, they gave him first place as though he were the leader of thieves. Or in Luther's more provocative words, he bore the person of a sinner and a thief. And not of one, but of all sinners and thieves. And all the prophets saw saw this, Luther continues, that Christ was to become the greatest thief, the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer and desecrator and blasphemer that has ever been anywhere in the world. He becomes a curse here. He is made sin. He is sin here. And in the eyes of God, he is a criminal, indeed the criminal among criminals. Secondly, the derision. Verse 35. The people stood by, the text says, watching. Possibly at or on their way to work. Maybe for amusement. Maybe for the spectacle. Roman executions, after all, were fairly common. The text says that the rulers sneered at him. They said... He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah. Whatever notions they had of Messiah, they did not include this gruesome bitter end. And to think that this taunt, this series of taunts, did not produce a fierce temptation for Jesus would be naive. Indeed, he who saved others, who was in fact the Messiah, the king, could have saved himself from this torture. He could have. But then again, he couldn't have. For this was his mission. This was his calling from the Father, to whom he had just prayed Forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And so though the jeering crowd couldn't grasp it, to come down from the cross would have shown precisely that he is not the messianic king. And so he ignores the taunts. He prays for his own executioners. He bleeds for them. He endures each excruciating, gasping moment. 
The text says the soldiers also came up and mocked him. Blind to the fact that the cross is a royal scepter, a throne, they demand, if you are the king, the king of the Jews, save yourself. The warrior soldiers, they see nothing noble, nothing kingly here at all. No self-respecting Roman would. All the ancient Greco-Roman ideas about strength and manliness and valor and self-possessed dignity are being overthrown here. And Luke notes, it's in verse 37, that there's a mocking notice written above him, which ironically bears the truth. This is... This is the king of the Jews. Now Mark in his gospel tells the same story, only he points out that those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and said, come down from the cross and save yourself. So much for the wisdom So much for the common sense, the mythology of the common sense of the ordinary man. The common people are as blind as all the rest in this scene. And Mark also adds, in the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this king of Israel come down from the cross, then we'll believe. And so you have the whole world here at the foot of the cross. Bystanders, thrill-seekers, passers-by, common people, political rulers, learned scholars of the law, religious priests, Roman soldiers. And they all heap up derision. They all mock. They're all equally blind. All the disciples, except John and a handful of women, have had their faith shattered in the preceding hours and have fled. And so everyone is certain, whatever kingly glory and triumph is, this naked, flogged, nailed, pierced spectacle of a man is not it. And that brings us to discuss this glory. It's not in our text from Luke, but Mark says, those crucified with him, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Both criminals had, in the beginning of this three-hour ordeal, both criminals had joined in the mocking and in the ridicule. So that their own executions, already in progress, had done nothing to change their perspective on the one in the middle, the leader of the thieves. But it's just here that the story takes a wondrous turn, a surprising turn. Luke says in verse 39, one, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? 
Save yourself and us. Then note verse 40. But the other criminal who had been mocking, right, who had been mocking according to Mark, rebukes him. This criminal is the famous thief on the cross. And he has been in the midst of this scene and all of its chaos, he has been undergoing a radical spiritual conversion. And now, at the bitter end, he tells the mocking criminal, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? In other words, can't you see the judgment of God in your own execution? And then, remarkably, he confesses, we, he says to the other criminal, not just you, but you and I, we are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. He consents to his execution as just. You know, it's a confession that a good many decent religious people can never seem to make. Maybe thieves and insurrectionists, really bad people deserve this crucifixion, we think, but surely not I. And yet Jesus dies for all sinners. For we are all represented in that crowd there at the foot of the cross. Yes, it's true, not all are as bad as these men. But arguing about which set of sins are worse than another set of sins is an argument between drowning men about who's going to drown faster. The wages of all sin is death. All sin defiles us and makes us guilty. All of us put Jesus on the cross. And all of us, Martin Luther said, carry his nails in our pockets. This spectacle is what we all deserve. We are not only in the crowd, we are with those thieves. There's no man righteous, not one. And Jesus has made sin not just for these men, but for you and for me, because everybody has a criminal underneath their skin. And so this thief, until just moments ago, was a mocker. And now what he does is he confesses the heart of the good news, the heart of the gospel in the judgment of the cross. We, he says, are only getting what we deserve. And then, this thief, against and in the face of the tidal wave of abuse declares Jesus' innocence. This man has done nothing wrong. He becomes a witness for the defendant. And then he turns to Jesus. And here his confession is even more stunning. He has come to see something that the whole company of people on the, in the scene have missed. He says, Jesus, he knows his name. 
And he almost surely knows the name means the Lord saves. He now sees Jesus as his Savior. He is the one person, remarkably in this scene, who is now providing comfort to our Lord and Savior, this thief. He's ministering to the Lord in his distress. The disfigured figure in the middle is bearing the world's sin, and he is, even in this hour, saving sinners, including the vilest, the one next to him, in the last moments of their lives. He is reigning from the tree. But the thief sees more than this. So here he is. It's a state-sponsored execution. The crowd is ruthless. Jesus is in the midst of his God-forsakenness. Jesus' self-emptying is at its lowest. And his identity at its most mysterious, wrapped in darkness. And his body is stripped and battered and mangled. And he's in the sheer abyss of weakness. And the thief, and he alone, sees a king. No religious leader, no priest, no Roman, no common person, no one. He sees a king. He turns and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Where did this come from? How is it that this light appears? You have a capital offender and a criminal who becomes the theologian of disfigured kingly glory at this place. The place Luke calls the place of the skull. You know where this comes from? It comes from the kingly wounds of the one in the middle. It comes from those royal lacerations. It comes from that majestic anguish. It comes from the sovereign prayers of the one in the middle, the one who reigns from the tree, the one who is mighty to save from the tree, saves this criminal. Now, if we're honest, we might admit that for some of us, the story of the thief causes problems. How is it fair? He was a criminal his whole life, and now he's redeemed? It offends our sense of justice. But that, beloved, puts us with the passers-by and the mocking crowd who don't understand what our sins deserve and what our fate would be were God to deal with us according to strict justice. Puts us with all the counters and the tabulators and the law keepers who deep down think that salvation is for, you know, flawed, not perfect people, but pretty good people. It puts us with those who think the grace of God operates on our petty little scales. It's fine for our sins, 
but somehow that grace is not vast enough or glorious enough, and that river of God's mercy cannot obliterate the sins of a vile person committed across a whole lifetime. The cross is good for us. We're we're a little queasy about how really good it is for murderers and insurrectionists. There's a minister, a colleague here in the New York Presbytery, recently told us about the conversion of one David Berkowitz. You remember David Berkowitz, I suspect, if you are of the right age. He's the son of Sam Killer. And in his killing spree in New York City, 1976 and 1977, he murdered six people, wounded seven others. While Berkowitz was in prison in 1987, a fellow inmate gave him a Bible. And when Berkowitz read Psalm 34, 6, he came to Christ. The text says this poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. This is disturbing for some. But this is glorious. That same minister told a similar story of a book he was reading. It was called Mission at Nuremberg. And it's about a U.S. Army chaplain a man named Henry Gorecki. He was called to minister to some of the Nazis who were on trial at Nuremberg for war crimes they had committed during World War II. Wilhelm Keitel, second only to Hitler in the Nazi military hierarchy, was hanged for war crimes. But the chaplain who ministered to these men at the trial testifies that Keitel... And a number of others went to the gallows as Christians. They're modern-day thieves on the cross. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Real, vile, horrid sinners. Murderers like Saul of Tarsus, murderers like King David, murderers like David Berkowitz, like Nazi war criminals, like the thief on the cross. And in that company are the -the run-of-the-mill, defiled sinners, inner criminals like you and me. It's only a question of who's drowning faster. So one thing we learn from this story about the thief on the cross is you can be sure heaven will have some startling surprises. One thing that won't be or shouldn't be a surprise is this. There's going to be no deserving people there. Because this figure in the middle, the chief, the leader of the thieves, has turned that tree of execution into the tree of life. All of us, thieves like the thief, can be with him, the king, in paradise. Amen.